0: Well, if you grab your Bibles this morning, if you don't have a copy, of God's Word, there's, there's some around the pillar on that table there. But if you go ahead and grab uh, your Bible this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We've been here for several weeks now, and, and this is actually the last, the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Next Sunday we'll celebrate Christmas together here. Um, but this is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. We've kind of been considering the birth narrative of Jesus as is recorded by, by Matthew in, in chapter 1. Uh, the first week uh, of this of, of our time together, we talked about the genealogy of Jesus, and we saw that salvation through the genealogy is coming for all people. We saw a pretty messed up list of people. Um, there was a pretty messed up list of people here, um, and we saw that despite the dysfunction, the human dysfunction, the devastation that was contained within this list, Jesus broke in through this list and we we saw that nothing can, can can really separate one from the love of God because of God's redeeming work through the person of, of Jesus Christ decision that we make or, or something that's inflicted on the outside it doesn't matter the person's past does not dictate their future we saw that salvation is then coming for all people not just a segment of the population and that's a primary theme that we see throughout chapter 1 and throughout all of Matthew's gospel. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' complete divinity and his complete humanity. We looked specifically at the virgin birth and how Matthew records that for us. We saw that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that mediation between God and man is only made possible if both of those things are completely true. If, God is, if Jesus is completely God and completely man, that is the only way that mediation can occur. And Jesus came to establish that mediation, and it's possible because of His complete humanity and His complete divinity. We talked about the fact that salvation comes from God alone in the book of Jonah. God says to Jonah in chapter 2, verse 9, He says, salvation is from the Lord. And we see that that is Actually, very literally, what is happening here in Matthew's Gospel is this God breaks into our world in the birth of Jesus Christ. God breaks in and he brings about salvation. Salvation is quite literally from, from God alone. So that we can rest in the fact that Christmas, this season, this time of Advent, proclaims the Gospel to us very clearly. A mediator has come to earth and God has made a way for us. Um, and then last week we thought about Joseph in particular. We took a different angle and we looked at Joseph. And in particular, verse 19, um, where Matthew records that her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We talked about how Matthew records Joseph as being a just man, a, a righteous man. And, and how Matthew wants to prompt his readers to incorporate compassion into their understanding of the coming kingdom. He wants them to see that compassion is a is a key part of the righteousness that is required for godliness. And then ultimately to see that Jesus' life and ministry was one that was centered around compassion and not in spite of it. We see then him Jesus put Throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is set in contrast to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers, the religious leaders of the day. They heaped burdens upon people. And they said, here, do this, do this, do this. There were the Ten Commandments, right? And they said, we need to uphold these Ten Commandments. So in order to do that, we're going to put 50 laws. We're going to construct 50 laws around each of those Ten Commandments. And and so there's just this huge amount of burden for the, 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 the people of Israel, and Jesus comes and He says, um, take my yoke upon you, my burden is easy. So this morning, the final Sunday of Advent, I want to think a little bit more about verse 18 through 25. Again, we've been here for a while, but I want to think a little bit more about this and tie some things in here. Um, Think about just sort of the ordinary nature, sort of the matter-of-fact way that Matthew talks about Jesus' birth here and some serious implications for us in this. Think about these incredible but ordinary truths that are contained within the birth of Jesus. I think our minds typically go to something explosive, something big, some, some big, incredible event. Um, but Matthew's emphasis really here is on something very normal, something very, very ordinary. So this morning then, um, there's our big idea then coming out of this text. Let me read the text for us first. And then we'll think about a big idea. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for the, that, which she, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that divinely inspired. Lord, we thank you for the way that Matthew records this for us. God, and I pray now that as we look at this text this morning, that we would see the extraordinary becoming ordinary, and that we would see that God took on flesh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> God, I pray that our time together would be fruitful, profitable, as Mark prayed that it would transform us, that it would change us, that it would shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Not only in this moment, but as we go from here and live out our week leading up to Christmas. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this morning, before I we think about the big idea, so this morning, I was just thinking about this as we were worshiping together. This morning, Abel, my oldest, he's three, he said to his mother at the dinner or at the breakfast table, he said, he said. Mom, thank you for everything. And Rebecca said, "What, what do you, what do you mean, Abel? What, what are you talking about? What do you mean?" And he said, "No, oh, thank you for for everything." And she said, "Like, like what? What are you, what are you talking about?" And he said, "Like for all the food that you make for me and everything, just for everything." And and that that's a cute thing. And it, she sent that to me in a text message, and there were like ten emojis after that, like crying emoji and like heart eye emoji, and smiley emoji, and blushing emoji, and so there are lots of emojis that accompanied that particular text, but when I was thinking about that, and I was thinking to myself, how much, how much of the time do we spend thinking and thanking God for the ordinary things in our world? How much time do we spend thinking about our day-to-day the monotony of our lives and what it means that we are a particular place at a particular time and how God is meeting us in that place? So as we look at the birth of Jesus as, as recorded in Matthew chapter 18, or Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25, the big idea then for us this morning is simply this. Matthew records that Jesus is Emmanuel. We see that. It's actually quoted from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and so they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew records that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He gives us the translation, God with us. A God who came in an unthinkable way to bring about an unthinkable kingdom and to welcome an unthinkable people. Matthew records that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So God who came in an unthinkable way to bring about an unthinkable kingdom and welcome an unthinkable people. So then the three things that we want to talk about this morning are those unthinkable statements. Coming in an unthinkable way. Bringing about an unthinkable kingdom and welcoming an unthinkable, kingdom, or, and welcoming an unthinkable people. Um... So that first idea there, right? God came in an unthinkable way. And I said it earlier, um, but the extraordinary becomes ordinary, right? God becomes flesh. God takes on flesh. And I think that the truth contained within this thought is, has maybe the most profound implications for us as we look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, the extraordinary becomes ordinary. When we considered the virgin birth just a couple weeks ago, we thought about Mary carrying Jesus. We thought about the fact that he, she was conceived in him, but, but she, conce- she conceived um, and, and then she bore him and she carried him until birth. And just sort of the ordinary nature of that process, right? It's an ordinary nature of that process. And that is an indicator to us of Jesus' complete humanity, right? But it's so non-explosive. It's so, it's so just simple and ordinary. And Matthew, it's almost frustrating when I look at verses 18 through 25 and I read this. He talks about it so matter-of-factly, right? It's so matter-of-fact. There's no flowery language. There's no, there's no like adverbs here. There is. There are a couple, but there's. As I'm looking at it, but there's no. There's no like. There's nothing here that's like super explosive in our minds. We're like, oh my goodness, wow, that's incredible. And when we read this, we just we think to ourselves, wow, that, it's so stated, so matter of factly. And I, I, I think there's one particular reason why. Why this is set, so stated so matter-of-factly? Um, I think first of all, um, and, and I think in, in particular, it's because his audience was, was Jewish. And so when he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. His Jewish audience would have thought to themselves, I have heard that read at synagogue before. We've gone to our corporate gathering together, and we've heard that read before. What what is that all about? They would have never in their wildest dreams thought the fulfillment of this was going to be in the form of God literally taking on flesh. They would have never thought that. Um, Tim Keller in his book Hidden Christmas writes this. Everything in the Hebrew worldview militated against the idea that a human being could be God. Jews would have not even pronounced the name Yahweh, nor spell it. And yet Jesus Christ, by His life, by His claims, and by His resurrection, convinced His closest Jewish followers that He was not just a prophet telling them how to find God, but God Himself come to find them. Matthew is driving his readers, as we look at this text, Matthew is driving his readers to the ordinary nature of the event. It is an ordinary thing. If you flip over and read Luke's account, right? The one that Linus talks about in in Charlie Brown Christmas special, which I'm sure that you've all watched now. If you flip over there, or you're going to watch it because how could you not? If you're going to flip over to Luke, you're going to see 80 verses in chapter 1 of Luke with all of this flowery, introspective language, giving us this this deep Mary bursts into song and and, and praises God, and, and there are just all of these these ongoing these songs and these these stories, this flowery language over and over and over again throughout 80 verses in Luke's gospel. It's all this introspective, just like soul-searching kind of engagement with the what's going on. And Luke really wants to demonstrate the the, the momentousness of the event, the momentousness of the coming King, the momentousness of Jesus' birth. But Matthew, seven verses, after a boring genealogy, wants to play on the ordinary nature of the coming King. The Jews most definitely would have wanted to, would have expected a big hoopla. I think that we also would have expected a big hoopla. But what did they get? They got a baby. They got a baby. Brought about by natural means. So a a God that they worshipped came to earth in an unthinkable way, taking on flesh to bring about an unthinkable kingdom and welcome an unthinkable people. So, so what, why, does, why does Matthew do this? Why does he record the birth of Jesus in this way? Why does he record the birth of Jesus in the way that he does in verses 18 through 25? And I think it's just this. I think it is because we, as people, I think we're all honest with each other, If it went with ourselves. We prefer Luke's account to Matthew's account. We prefer Luke's account to Matthew's account. Why, why do I say that? What do I mean by that? I think that we long for explosions in the sky. We kind of get that in Luke's account, right? We get explosions in the sky. We get this bursting forth of heavenly hosts, and the shepherds are seeing it. They're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And I have to be told multiple times throughout in Luke's account to not be afraid. We see that multiple times. We prefer as a people explosions in the sky to the simplicity of one in 108 billion births to ever happen on the face of planet Earth. This is one of 100, estimated, 108 billion births to take place. There's something very simple, something very ordinary about it. I think we as a people prefer to have Handel's Messiah move us to tears rather than hear the disgusting noises of animals in a barn comprise the soundtrack of the birth of the Messiah. I think, we, I think we long to bathe in the beauty of a basilica rather than, rather than contemplate the curse-riddled pain of childbirth. So practically, I think for us as people, when we're looking for explosions, we're looking for these big, ongoing events, these extraordinary things in our lives, these markers in our world. We sort of move from one major life event to the next. Things tend to go wrong, and we hope that they don't go wrong anymore. We pursue major changes in our lives. Things things get Better when we pursue those changes for a little while, but then the, the luster quickly fades from us. This luster quickly fades and, and things go back to the where they are. Loved ones get sick, people get hurt, our bodies break down, our work yields little. And this is the world we live in, and I'm telling you right here this morning: beware of a Christianity. Beware of a Christianity that denies that these things exist for the believer. They absolutely exist for the believer. In it is, it is some sense, that should make us upset, that should frustrate us, that should make us sad to think to ourselves, there's like there's such an ordinary nature, the way that our, our lives move in, in and out every day, like the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes it causes us to ask the question: where is God and is God even good? And when we look at Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. Think to ourselves, this is just so ordinary. Is God even good? I think that we are hardwired to see, this is kind of the crux of it, right? I think that we are hardwired as a people to seek heavenly realities here on earth. We are hardwired to seek realities that ultimately are only realized in heaven. And I think that this drives us to do most of what we do here on earth that this actually drives us to do most of what we do here on earth every morning you wake up and you hope to have a a good day right you walk out of the house and your spouse calls out have a good day you meet somebody on the street and you say have a good day right when we get home we sit around the dinner table and we're having dinner or wherever it might be The first question that gets asked is, how was your day? And we certainly want to answer that question good. It was a good day. I had a good day. I had a great day. It was wonderful. If we're really honest with ourselves, that goodness that we experience here on earth leaves us empty, right? Because we know that right around the corner is something not so good for us. Because we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world that, that that right around the corner. Even if things feel good, feel right, feel okay, feel good, there's something right around the corner that is not so good. So in the morning we wake up and we pray for a good day. Give us a good day before we go to work or school, or before the kids wake up, before we run errands, whatever it might be. Do whatever our routine is, and we seek experiences in our world of where perceived goodness is a reality. And while we can't find those experiences regularly in our world, we seek major change or a change of scenery. And we, finding something good here on earth is the goal. It causes us to question whether God is good or, or, or when things go wrong or aren't good. And Jesus gave us the perfect example of this um, in the prodigal son. Just the lead up into the prodigal son. He gave us this perfect example. This is just the first few verses of that parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, between his two sons. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. That that setup is exactly what we're talking about. That setup is exactly what we're talking about. We're demanding, just like the prodigal son, we're demanding future realities in the present. When we seek goodness and experience and circumstances and not in God, we, like the prodigal son, demand our inheritance now and when our inheritance is ultimately in heaven. And when we lose a loved one, Or when we lose our job, or when our child is diagnosed with life altering disease, or planes fly into towers, or bombs go off in major population centers, or our car won't start because it's negative 13 degrees out. We might not say it, but we shake our fists. How could a good God let these things happen? Here's the question for you, and here's the question that Scripture asks us when. When we, when we question God's goodness, how could you, a created being, define that? How could you, as a created being, define goodness to the creator of all things? God is good. It says He is good. No earthly scenario or circumstance can change that. If you think that it can, if you think that your day-to-day could bring about a change in definition of goodness for God, then you've constructed God in your own mind. You've effectively made yourself God. You've denied a fundamental truth of why Jesus came to earth and why Matthew records this here in chapter 1 to secure an inheritance for you that you don't deserve. That is why Jesus came and to give you a reality that you long for but can't bring about here on earth. To Keller earlier, and here's here's another quote from his book, Hidden Christmas. No one is really neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. Who can be objective about the the claim that, if it is true, means you've lost control of your life? You can't be. You can't be objective about that. Here's the Here's sort of the summary idea of what we're talking about here. Matthew wants his readers to see the deliverance that they long for as coming in the most ordinary way. The deliverance that the Jews sought, a political, sort of governmental deliverance from their oppression, from their occupation by Rome. When they get to verse 18 in chapter 1 through 25, and you read this, they thought to themselves, this this is a really ordinary thing. This is not what we were expecting, but here it comes and this is the the takeaway for us out of this idea. The monotony of your daily life and the struggles that come along with it are not an indicator of a lack of God's goodness towards you, but the place where God's goodness meets you. The monotony of your daily life and struggles that come along with it are not an indicator of God's lack of goodness towards you, but a place where God meets you. God's goodness to humanity found its expression in the most ordinary place, in the simplest of ways, a baby was born. So that brings us then to think about the, the coming kingdom and the unthinkable way that this kingdom was coming about. This baby would bring about this unthinkable kingdom. Jonathan Pennington writes this about the coming kingdom. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God that has come in the Lord Jesus is radically different from the way that you and I naturally think and act um, and different from the way that we structure human society. It is unexpected, shocking, and topsy-turvy to human sensibilities the expected and radical nature of the kingdom is why Jesus spends so much time trying to explain what this kingdom from heaven is like, and why people seldom understand. The beatitudes give us an image of the blessed ones that is just the opposite of what we would what we would naturally value. They are poor in spirit, the persecuted, the mourning, the meek. The parable of the kingdoms paint. For us, pictures where debtors are freely forgiven, where the smallest seed produces the largest tree, and where the last-come workers receive the same reward. Jesus' model of life shows open-armed compassion for the downtrodden, the touching of the leper, the exalting of a lowly child, the welcoming of the Gentile, and the listening ear for blind outcast beggars. As king of the universe, he enters Jerusalem not on a war horse or a golden chariot, but riding humbly on the foal of a donkey. As king of all, he will re- he willingly rise into the city where iron nails will soon be used to hang him naked on a cross in the scorching sun. And the king instructs us that we learn that the one who wants to be first should not exercise an overbearing leadership style, but should be the slave of all. The one who is blessed by God with material wealth should set it aside to follow Christ. The one who desires to save his life must, in fact, die. Such is the radical nature of the vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives. This is an unthinkable kingdom. This is an unthinkable way. And does that not compel you? Check your pulse. Christianity in our world has become something completely different. It is pressed on all of those things all of the time. Demanding our rights instead of relinquishing them. Seeking to build lasting things with materials that don't last. Investing in earthly when the kingdom of heaven is near. surely this kingdom is unthinkable and it's offensive surely this kingdom that jesus brought about that he's the king of is offensive you should feel offended you should think to yourself no my rights i want them i demand this i deserve this is god not good And the answer is, he is good in bringing about this unthinkable kingdom. No one wants a kingdom that tells us that our priorities are backwards. That's the kingdom that we got. You want power? Then wash the feet of others. You want riches? Give everything away. You want life? Here is death. This is what the kingdom of God, this is what the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, proclaims to us in Matthew's gospel and what the birth of Jesus inaugurates for us. Wake up! What is your flesh saying? If it's not saying no to this, check your pulse. If If it's not that you haven't begun to consider what Jesus came for, these aren't just proverbial statements for a Sunday morning. Wrestle with the fact that you demand your rights. Stop thinking about yourself for one second and think about the fact that you are called to die to yourself. Yeah, Seriously, weep and mourn and pour out your soul before God because the kingdom that came into this world is one that is the exact opposite of what the one that you want. And I can say that definitively. It is exactly opposite because i'm a sinner and i know it's the exact opposite of the one that i want and i know that you're a sinner and it's the exact opposite of the one that you want to weep and mourn and cry out to god Bear your broken soul to him because the kingdom of you god is the one that flows through your flesh tells you is stupid you should try and build your own try and build your own kingdom And then think about the fact that God made you. He sent His Son to break into the world to bring about this kingdom. This is the kingdom that He decided to bring about. And ask the indwelling Spirit to show you the beauty of it. It is something so profoundly ordinary. It is something so profoundly ordinary. When we look at our lives and we say, this is so ordinary, the monotony over and over and over again. Is God good? God is absolutely good. It is your definition that needs reworking. Ask God through the indwelling spirit to show you the beauty of the kingdom that we get. So to bring about an unthinkable kingdom, and then finally, to welcome an unthinkable people, and this is where we'll end this morning. So that fleshy response, that fleshy response that, 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 that resists the ordinary, that seeks goodness in circumstances and experiences instead of God, that fleshy response that says, surely I can build this kingdom here, I can build this kingdom better. That fleshy response that demands of God, rather than resting in his divine nature, makes us that unthinkable people that Jesus came for. The Jews often referred to Gentiles. The Jews referred to Gentiles as sinners. The Gentiles, non Jewish people by heritage, they referred to them as sinners. The fact of the matter is, that's us. Both as non-Jews, but just as humanity. We all had simply first commandment. We've all broken it. We've all had other gods before Him. And this makes us, at the very base level, that unthinkable people, a fleshy response resisting the ordinary desiring something more, something here, demanding our inheritance like the prodigal son when our inheritance is out in front of us in heaven. Our flesh saying, surely I can build this kingdom here and I can can build it better. I can build a kingdom where I don't have to wash feet. I can build a kingdom where I get what I want, where where I don't have to relinquish my rights. I can build a kingdom where I don't have to die. All of this makes us an unthinkable people, and yet this is the truth and the beauty of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas. There's a lot vying for your attention over the course of the next week. There is a lot vying for your attention over the course of the next week. But the beauty and the truth of why Jesus came to earth and why Matthew records the birth narrative in the way that he does God broke in to make a way for us. God broke in to find a lost people. God broke in to meet us in the ordinary. God broke in to prepare an inheritance for us. God broke in in His complete divinity to bring about salvation. God broke in to, in His complete humanity, restore our humanity that had been robbed from us by sin to restore it to us and God broke in to make the unthinkable kingdom that he was bringing about welcoming in an unthinkable people he broke in to make that our reality let's pray.